I felt like crying as I was watching that clip. Uh, it's a tragedy. The uh, reason we are showing that on Friday night is to juxtapose that against the conference on uh, Saturday, in which you will hear from two pastors, both who lost children. A pain uh, I cannot imagine, nor do I want to. Uh, but what you saw there is not, as Scott just prayed, not what the world needs. They need Christ and true hope. I'm very uh, blessed to see how many are coming to the conference where I have a good showing from UCF, and I know it'll be a good time. Our first reading this morning is found in 1 John. First John, chapter 2. I'm in John, not First John, I hope. First John, chapter 2, reading verses 28 uh, through chapter 3, verse 3. First John 2, 28. And now, little children... Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our next reading is found in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, we will read the entire chapter. <coughs> now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And our last reading is found in 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, reading verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. Thanks, Joe. Well, you can keep your Bibles open to 1 John. We're going to do some hopping around, however, this morning as we come into this uh, next section. As you all know, or most of you should know anyway, our current series is rooted in this little letter of 1 John. Um, And in it, John, uh, which doesn't always happen with every book of the Bible, but in this particular one, uh, John is good to give us four explicit reasons why he even wrote the book. Uh, And they come to us right in the the letter itself. First, uh, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's a self-focus there for John. He finds joy in certain things. Uh, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's a concern on John's heart for the believers. Third, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He wants the children of God to be living in truth. And fourth, which has been kind of the the touchstone for us all along, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Just this week, I was doing some reading in a separate area, and I stumbled again on some of the work of William Perkins. William Perkins was a late 16th century uh, Puritan. Matter of fact, he's considered the father of Elizabethan Puritanism, so an early English writer. And in his writing, um, he was constantly dealing with what the Puritans used to refer to as cases of conscience. Um, apparently, uh, especially under the preaching of the word, people would be struck with all sorts of a sense of conscience, how the word convicted them, how the Holy Spirit brought to the surface that they had sins and areas in their lives that needed addressed, and they would come to their pastors and say, what do I do about this? How do I sort out this issue in my life? How do I live with a clear conscience regarding X, Y, or Z? Uh, Perkins wrote extensively on this, the first ever kind of Christian manual on how to deal with these issues of conscience for for other pastors and for believers in general. He also wrote that the single greatest issue of conscience that he was presented with and his pastor friends were presented with uh, all the days of his ministry was people struggling with an assurance of their salvation. This is nothing new. This has been part of the Christian experience from the very beginning. Uh, So while we've been focusing on John's fourth reason, we see, in fact, how all uh, that he writes revolves around all four of the reasons that he gives us here. And if you could, you could put this in a short digest. John doesn't consider his own joy complete or full Unless three things. Number one, believers are helped to overcome sin in their lives. He's got a great concern for that. So his concern isn't whether or not the believers have comfortable, easy, fun lives, but whether or not they can overcome sin. That's a huge issue. And and the real believer wrestles with that issue on a regular basis. Secondly, his joy isn't full unless believers are kept from the, the deceptions of false doctrine, false teaching. He really wants the the believer to live in reality, and reality as God describes it, the the truth that we get from the scripture. But then lastly, he isn't full of joy unless Christians are certain about their salvation status. So this is from the very beginning. He knows that we're going to wrestle with this issue, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's addressing this issue in a lot of detail. The Spirit inspired John to write this. Um, 
And we see that our God, because it's the Spirit who inspired it, what we see is that God isn't content for believers to live in uncertainty about their status before him. God himself wants us to be certain of our situation. And and we don't want some vague hope that someday he might receive us, but a steadfast and a sure hope. One of, the, one of the passages we just had read for us makes that point exactly. It's in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter writes. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, let me paraphrase that. Bless God, says Peter. Merciful as he is... He doesn't give us a salvation whereby we just hope things will work out well in the end. But but he calls it a living a hope, a a hope that's vibrant, one that's alive and continues to to feed our souls. Uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, in his Systematic Theology, addresses this passage this way. He says, this hope is the eager, confident expectation of the life to come. Now, this is so foreign to the way we live today, where all our focus is on now. How can I have more comfortable, more happy, more solid circumstances now? And instead, it's projecting us into the future. And saying, uh, those of you, I, I, I had a, um, this week we did a, um, uh, an interview with one of our new pastoral candidates, Monday night. And before we even got started, he had a question. He said, I see on the end of you sign every one of your emails that you're a Kuyperian abnormalist. What in the world does that mean? And I said, that's a really good question. I used to sign it recovering Pharisee and some people got upset about that. So I I ditched that one and I went to Kuyperian abnormalist because I didn't think anybody knew what it meant. And it would gender questions. I get a chance to answer it. Abraham Kuyper, that famous uh, theologian in the Netherlands in the 1800s, a fabulous guy. He wrote his, his seminal work on the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, personal work of the Holy Spirit in, at the University of Amsterdam in 1863. Just a brilliant theologian who then went, went on to become the prime minister of the Netherlands. Also had a great political mind and believed that his calling as prime minister was to lead his nation in national revival. Now, that's the kind of guy you want as a prime minister. It was pretty, pretty impressive stuff. But Kuiper was constantly reminding his readers that we live in an abnormal world. Don't look at the world around you and think this is normal. It isn't. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world where everything is distorted, where there's all kinds of mayhem and trial and tribulation, and those things belong to the fall. This is not how it was designed. But we've gotten so used to this world the way it is, we think this is normal. He says, no, don't think that way. Think this is abnormal. Think toward the normal that God wants to bring us to, which is living in his presence without the ravages of sin being present around us. So this hope uh, is the eager, confident expectation of the life to come. It's living, writes Grudem. And by so describing it, Peter indicates that it grows and increases in strength year by year. Don't miss that. Anything that's living has a growth pattern. And that's, that's Peter's point here. By, by describing it as a living hope, Peter indicates it grows and increases in strength year by year. If such a growing hope is the expected result of being born again, then perhaps the degree to which believers have an intense confident expectation of the life to come is one useful measure of progress towards spiritual maturity. Bingo. If this isn't factored into your day-to-day theology, you're stunting your own spiritual growth. Looking for the fullness of the promise of the resurrection is imperative for us to get a mindset that leads us in growing in Christ and in holiness. You remember last week how we took time to, uh, to see how the Bible uses the word faith as compared to the way that the world uses it, the popular use of the word. We, we, we have the same problem here with the word hope. The one who's been born again by the Spirit of God doesn't just hope 
someday things will work out well now that we've put our trust in Christ. It's not that kind of a vague thing at all. That's not how the Bible uses hope. Our hope, biblical hope, is far, far different from that. I I understand how most people use the word hope. Um, Kind of, I may not have any reason for such and such to happen, but I hope it will. Um, The old joke about the guy who, who kept Uh, praying, Lord, every week the lottery goes by and I don't win it again. And every week the lottery goes by and I don't get it again. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And one day the heavens opened and God said, help me out here, buy a ticket. Um, We we kind of, we can hope with, with baselessness behind it. And that's not the kind of hope the Bible talks about. The normal kind of hope that the world talks about is, it's merely an expression of a desired outcome, whether or not there's any foundation for that. But just like biblical faith, biblical hope is always rooted in the stated promises of God and his character. So if you were to define biblical hope, I would define it this way. It's the joyful expectation of the good that God has promised us to come at Jesus' return. There's a foundation underneath that hope. Read um, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the roll call of the heroes of faith. But in it, you see how their hope worked, but it was always connected with what God had promised. So it wasn't a, gee, I just hope this works out. It's a, I've got a great hope, a great desire and expectation that this is going to come to pass because it's God who's promised it. It's not the vague wish for kind of hope. It's rooted in something solid. It's substantive. And its foundation is always the sure promises of God. And one of the things this belongs to, this is the the birthright of all of those who have put their trust in Christ as as our lone sin bearer and as, as him being our righteousness. This is our birthright, that we have a promised and therefore a sure future, and one that includes our own resurrection of the dead. Fantastic. I mean, I look for that. I, I say this every year when we have our Easter service, and I'll, I'll try to not say it this year because we're saying it here, and Easter's still a few weeks away. But early Christians, a lot of times, held their church services in cemeteries. Because they were anticipating the resurrection of the dead. They wanted to be there when their loved ones came out of the tombs in those new resurrected bodies. They, they anticipated that. That's why, in fact, they called cemeteries, not what we call them today, they called them dormitories. They're just sleeping until Christ returns. And then they'll be raised from the dead. It was a, a whole different mindset than what we have today. So as expressed by Grudem in that citation I just had, This is a hope that can grow and increase in strength year by year if we attend to it. In fact, of all the things we've looked at so far as markers uh, and, and a use for means of an assurance of salvation, the knowledge and the hope of the resurrection is one of only two areas that we can actively grow in over time. Uh, And what are those things that John has mentioned so far as contributing to our assurance? Uh, by way of quick, response, uh, quick review, uh, our relationship to the Word of God. Is it God's inerrant authority in my life and my relationship to God himself? Uh, have I been reconciled to him through the gospel, through the blood of Christ, so that, so that I've been adopted as his own? Uh, do I hate the remaining sin that's in me, even though I find that I still love some of that? sin. I'm torn in that place and that's a good sign. Do I have an inexplicable affinity for God's people no matter how little else we might have in common? If they're God's people, they're, they're my people. They're part of our family. A, a, a rejection of the world's values instead in adopting biblical values and a reliance as we talked about last time on the indwelling Holy Spirit of Christ. And this morning Another great representation, our relationship, how we relate to the reality of the resurrection. It's a good thing for us to examine and to look at. So here's the question. 
The question is, can I discern in myself anything of a genuine anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises that culminate in the resurrection from the dead? Is that part of how I live? Part of how I think? Is that resident within me? And if not, well, something's amiss. And as a believer, you need to go back and to address that. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to look at at two things. Um, And the first is that the world has a poor and destructive counterfeit to this hope. Very poor and very destructive. It's what propels suicide in so many. And it undergirds the current rise in euthanasia. Uh, It works out this way. It's not the hope of the resurrection, but it's the hope or the desire for a mere end to pain or discomfort. If if I die, if I kill myself, at least I won't hurt anymore. And and that's the the hope, and it and it ends there. It truncates at that point. But in fact, that's not hope. That's a that's an expression of hopelessness. That's saying things can't get any better, but maybe I can just make them end. When one can see no end to their pain, no prospect of anything changing any time in the foreseeable future, they can easily and perhaps understandably, I get this, give up on life altogether and believe the the lie that death will bring the relief they seek. But you see, there's a fundamental flaw to that line of reasoning. It's a lie because it gives no thought for what comes after death. Life doesn't cease at physical death. It goes on. And among other things, this view assumes that there's no afterlife where judgment for sin sin before a holy God still awaits it just takes him out of the picture it's no there's there'll be no giving of an account of how we lived our lives how we thought so so I'll just end it and that's all it's it's a very narrow and a very uh, immediate view but doesn't comprehend eternity and the future it assumes the cessation of temporary pain is the ultimate and final good And there can't be anything worse after. That's to completely ignore the biblical record. To ignore the graphic and in some cases in in the scripture, terrifying revelations in the Bible of, of an eternal hell to be endured by those who reject Christ and his saving work. It just it just discounts that entirely, it just takes it off the off the platter. Jesus himself spoke frequently and powerfully on the mat on this matter as a means of warning all who heard him not to make our life decisions based only on the here and now but really contemplating what's to come jesus hits this so graphically in john chapter 5 he says truly truly i say to you an hour is coming and is now here When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There's going to be a resurrection. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. A Jesus who doesn't judge isn't the Jesus of the Bible. God the Father has committed all judgment into the hand of Jesus Christ. We will stand before him, every human being will. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There will be a resurrection. For the believer... We anticipate this with joy and say, yes. The unbeliever needs to think twice. What's this going to mean? And without the sure hope of the resurrection sustaining us in the darkest and most difficult times, even even believers can begin to give way to this way of thinking. So it has to be fought. It's a lie of the enemy who loves death and and perpetrates in our present culture, the culture of death. And as a result, we can be robbed of our strength and our courage to face things altogether. You stop and you think back, what, 
what could sustain Job in the midst of all of his sorrows? And Job wasn't a fictional character. He was real. And having lost all of his worldly wealth, uh, and then the death of his ten children on the same day, his painful health, because he was stricken with very poor health in all of this, and the arrows of his friends who came along to comfort him, but they, they misunderstood him and constantly accused him of having secret sins that brought these torments on him. What sustained him? How could he possibly say, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him? Where did that come from? He gives you the answer in chapter 19. Job says it in his own words. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Because he trusted in the resurrection. I can, I can live through this because I know what's coming. And that resurrection anchors me even if I can't understand the misery that I'm going through right now. Now, unfortunately, in American Christianity, we've kind of lost this. You know, it doesn't really impact us that much anymore. So that we can say with him, no matter what happens now and how how all of this ends in this life, I know the resurrection awaits and in this body I'm going to see my Redeemer. I'm going to see my God face to face. This time will end and it will give way to that eternity with him. Second thing I want to note before we jump into the text, and I've hinted at it already, is that the church has often neglected the resurrection. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be that this was the main thing that that pastors would preach on and counsel on when people were going through trials. Look forward to the resurrection. Look forward to the resurrection. We don't seem to have that on the front page anymore. Much of the blame for Christians being robbed of this aspect of assurance lays squarely in the lap of the church and how we preach the gospel and what we direct people to put their hope in. Let's go back. We had read for us that section out of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back to those essential elements of the gospel that Paul outlined there. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, if you you don't stand on the gospel, you heard it, oh man, sounds good mess with it for a while but to tell you the truth life's hard and and there's other stuff and and you move away from it that you're not going to stand there if you hold fast to the word i preached to you unless you believed in vain unless you said now i'm going to move on to something else for i delivered to you as of first importance this is vital for the christian mind vital for the gospel what i also received and what was that well first of all the christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Secondly, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. No resurrection from the dead, no gospel. I wonder how much of our gospel preaching today actually calls people to believe in the resurrection. We're just interested in the forgiveness of sins. Whether or not he raised from the dead is kind of irrelevant. Not according to Paul. This is the gospel. This is an absolute essential. This is of first importance. He goes on to state in Romans 10 uh, that belief in Christ's resurrection is an absolute essential for saving faith. You get that? You cannot have saving faith apart from a belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You get that? I think some of us may have heard some sort of a flimsy, airy gospel 
It didn't actually require me to believe Jesus was raised from the dead. And if so, you haven't heard the gospel yet. Why was it important that Christ was raised from the dead? Because in his being raised from the dead, as Paul will say in another place, it's in his resurrection that we're justified. The proof that sin was paid for and that God the Father accepted the sacrifice is that he raised Jesus from the dead so we can have an absolute assurance that our sin is atoned for. I need that to know that I'm saved. You see, the resurrection's tied to assurance. And so as 1 Corinthians 15 again so powerfully declares, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? I don't believe in them. Yeah, I, I like this Jesus died for me thing, but resurrection from the dead? I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. You're right. That's what makes it miraculous. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. There's got to be some kind of resurrection from the dead or, or Christ isn't raised. And if Christ has not been raised, let's make it clear. Our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There's no sense believing in Christianity if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. Just take it off the platform. And matter of fact, he says it's worse. We, the apostles, those who are preaching this, we're found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he must not have raised if there's no resurrection from the dead. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, get it. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What do you mean? Christ could die on the cross and I could still be in my sins? Yes. If all he did was die. If he wasn't raised from the dead, there's no salvation. Now that's extraordinary. And I don't know we even hear that much anymore. But, but Paul majors on this, says this is an essential, grasp this and, and don't let it get out. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. There is no true gospel and no true Christianity apart from the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Now, when we, when we add to the neglect of this, the, 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 the neglect in the current preaching in America and its focus on having a a healthy, wealthy, and happy life now without regard for the resurrection. I, I just heard it this week. I heard an advertisement on a secular radio station on a guy who's coming to Rochester, a guy I happen to like, who I think is a, a genuine gospel preacher. Um, uh, so I, I won't mention his name, but the teaser for the advertisement of him coming to Rochester is this. You don't have to wait to have your victorious life. You can have it now. Really? Tell that to the, Niger- the 200 Nigerians who were murdered for Christ this week by Muslims. Well, you can just have a happy life now. Yeah, they, they know better. Th- that works somewhat if you're in affluent America. It doesn't work so much if you're in sub-Saharan Africa. And if our gospel isn't as useful for them, it is not useful for anybody. We have this perfect storm that happens when the church neglects resurrection as part of the gospel and then teaches that the gospel is all about how we can live nice lives now. And the joyful expectation of the good that's promised us to come at Jesus' return is just kind of, well, that's icing on the cake. That's nice. If that happens, that's good. So, so little preaching and teaching today is rooted in the old dictum. And I, I tried to look up the origin of this. I couldn't find it, but it, was, it certainly strung throughout a lot of Puritan preaching that there is a heaven to be won and a hell to be shunned, and that has to be part of our preaching. There is a heaven to be won and a hell to be shunned. A heavenless and a hellless gospel robs us of the hope that we're meant to have. And so it undermines the assurance that we're meant to have in our salvation. But for true Christians, we have this extraordinary dynamic to take advantage of. If we are fixing our hope 
on a genuine divine promise, then we can grow more and more assured of it. The principle is a really simple one. You know it in everyday life. But the more we acquaint ourselves with and meditate on the sure promises of God, the more real they become and the more our anticipation of them grows. I've told the story, I'm sure I have before, that um, uh, Sky and I met on the internet and so there was a lot of writing that went back and forth and a lot of phone calls that went back and forth. And then there was that one night sitting in my living room. I remember, I'm, I remember the chair I was sitting in. I remember what, you know, what this, this conversation when I finally confessed my undying love to her. I said, you know, I have to tell you, I love you. And there's silence. Just silence. The last thing you want to hear is that deadly silence. And then this response in a few minutes. I need to hear more of your tapes. I'm thinking, man... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm dead in the water. You know, this is over. What she didn't tell me is that she had already purchased her wedding dress. It was hanging on the door while we're having this conversation. What was happening? She was anticipating something. And, and the closer that day came after I proposed and things went on, the closer that day came, the more real that day came, and the more the anticipation grew. That's exactly how it works with us and the gospel. This is how the principle functions with those who are betrothed to Christ. But if we're not setting our focus on that day, then we, we lose the sweet and the motivating anticipation of what's to come. And it is a wonderful motivator. It changes things. It, it gets you thinking in a certain direction. An anticipation that grows and grows excites us more and more and moves us toward, toward it, it, it solidifies that in our souls, that it's real, it's, it's going to happen. Well, that brings us back to our text in 1 John, and we'll move through this rather quickly, but let's go back to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So this is an anticipation of the resurrection, of his return and our resurrection to meet him. And if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Uh, John ties three things together here uh, as he addresses and hints at this issue of the resurrection. Uh, and and he, he puts it in front of us, with this idea that the more believers look at and contemplate the more uh, the, the resurrection, the more our anticipation and assurance grows in our hearts. Uh, the first mention is in verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Uh, watch how John connects two things here. It's really interesting. Abiding in Christ and not shrinking from him in shame when he returns. Well, what's that all about? Well, the first part is pretty obvious. You, you don't have to strain very hard to get it. The more one abides in Jesus, and that simply means to remain in him, to, to, to fully put our trust in his atoning sacrifice for our sins alone. The more we remain steadfast that the gospel is about his finished work and nothing else. The more we, we stay fixated on that if we're unmoved from the simplicity of the gospel. Then the more our confidence in his satisfaction for our sins grows. It's an automatic thing. The more I stay confident in that one thing. My, my grandfather had a saying uh, that my mom passed on to me years later. He said, if you believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts, you'll never doubt your beliefs or believe your doubts. Well, let me go back. I'll say it again. If you believe your beliefs 
and doubt your doubts, you'll never believe your doubts or doubt your beliefs. Stick with what you believe. And don't pay attention to what you don't. There's truth in it, but it's, but it's all the more true when we're fixing our minds on the things that God has firmly promised in his word to us. The more I rehearse the truths of God's word, the more sure they become to me. So this is why I go back and, and look at it over and over and over again. I see his faithfulness to his promises in the scripture played out in the lives of the saints. As I especially read the narratives of the Old Testament. And I grow more and more familiar with the actual promises and how he states them and then reaffirms them as I work through scripture. You know, one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is he's so repetitive you know, what you read in Corinthians, you get another part of in Galatians, and you'll get another part of in Thessalonians, and you'll get another part of in Timothy, and he's going he's to repeat these things. In Ephesians, he, he's repeating this material because we need to hear it over and over. How God verifies his promises and his track record and then seals it by proofs like raising Christ from the dead. That's why Jesus told the disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes that the Spirit would remind them of the things that he had said. Because in reminding them and in reminding us, in that going over and over that material again and again, those things grow more and more concrete in the soul. The more you drink them in, the more, the more you take them in, the more real they become. And that's just the way for you and me today. It's, it's why we encourage you to read and read and reread your Bible and, and over time, those things, again, solidify in our souls. And the, grout, the doubts, they grow dimmer and dimmer. And the certainty grows stronger and stronger. I've never yet found a skeptic of God's word who spent a lot of time reading it. Always, always the more time they spend reading it, the, the surer those things become. The reason why we abide in him, why we make sure that we affirm in our own hearts that we trust in Christ alone, is that over time, our trust in his finished work grows more and more, and that increases our confidence in the joy that we'll have at his return, rather than doubts and fears that some sort of punishment still awaits us. You come back to the scripture, back to the gospel, back to these truths. And when we really believe he will return, and remain faithfully trusting his work on our behalf, our hope, our joyful expectation of what will happen at the re resurrection grows. And our assurance then of our saved state grows. They work together in absolute tandem. But whenever we doubt him or, or doubt what he's promised, like the resurrection, we end up injuring our own assurance. So John's first point is... Refusing to stand anywhere but on the finished work of Christ on our behalf alone makes us anticipate the resurrection with joy. When I say, that's it, I'm going to stick to the gospel and nothing else, I encourage that joy in the resurrection. His second point comes to us in chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. He wants us to anticipate something greater than what we have now. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Uh, the more one explores the doctrine of the resurrection, the more one joyfully anticipates this whole new mode of existence. Uh, I want that resurrection body. This one ain't so great. The one to come is awesome. And I want that resurrection body. As we looked at earlier, those apart from Christ have at best a, a vague hope of some nondescript something after this life, a hope with no basis. At worst, it's only the hope that whatever misery they're experiencing in this life will just come to an end. But for those of us in Christ, he holds before us the promise of an eternal life in him that so far eclipses the very best that this life can possibly offer, that it's less in comparison than a single candle to the light of a thousand suns. 
They, they just aren't even in the same universe. We're already God's children, he says here. But what we will be, it's actually beyond our imagination. Because in some ways, we'll be like Christ. What does that all mean? I don't know. I just know it's got to be amazing. It's got to be beyond my ability to really get my head around at this point. Let me take you back to 1 Corinthians again. Uh, Someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? A a scoffer. Oh, sure, sure. They're going to be raised from the dead. They're going to come out like the walking dead, you know, you know, half eaten and, 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 and barely, you know, looking to, to suck somebody's brains. How are they raised? What kind of body do they come with? And he says, you know, you, you guys are being jerks, you foolish person. It, doesn't nature itself teach you that, that what you sow is not the body that's to be, but just a bare kernel? Don't you know that when you plant something, it's just a seed, but, it, but the seed isn't the final thing. Something else is going to grow out of that. So perhaps it's a a kernel of wheat or of some other grain. But then God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. You know this from just looking around you. Not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans. Here's the big difference between humans and that for animals. Humans are made to live indoors. Animals are made to live outdoors. That's why picnics are sin. So (laughs) we're made to live in. There's one kind of flesh of animals, one kind of flesh of humans. You know I'm joking about that. Okay. And there's another kind for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. But the the glory of the heavenly, the the brightness of it, the, the magnitude of it is one thing. And the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. The sun is super bright and generates its own light and the moon only reflects light. They they vary. And there's another glory of the stars. Some are really bright and some are really dim. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. All this is just a a way of of mapping out a, a comparison. What is sown perishable? What is raised imperishable? It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown, it goes into the ground a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body, and and thus it's written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. We were made in his image as we were born into this world, but the last Adam, he became a life-giving spirit. We're born again so that we can bear his image. So it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural. That's our, the current progression. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The, the second man is from heaven. As, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's, that's me. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's the Christian. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What must that be? I don't know, but he uses some great words there, doesn't he? I know that when we're raised again, we will be imperishable. Incapable of ever dying again. Not just that we won't die, we can't. Imperishable, glorious, powerful. Not, not weak like we are now and succumbing to disease and, and to all other sorts of things. And spiritual, bearing the image of Christ himself. Going back to his simile, just, just like birds are made to be able to live in their environment, to fly through the heavens, and fish are, are made to live in their environment so they can breathe underwater and, and swim around with the, and interact with our present bodies, are made to interact with this present physical world. We're going to be raised in a a totally redesigned body that's meant to exist in the environment of the unveiled presence of the living God so that we can maximally know him and comprehend him and experience him and enjoy him. Yes. I've got a body right now that can enjoy pizza and ice cream. I'm grateful for that. It is a blessing from God.
but I'm going to have a body then that is specifically designed to perceive his glory and his wonder, to hear his voice in a way I can't now, to see his glory in a way I can't now, to to feel his presence in a way I can't now, and to experience him in a way I can't now, and for eternity. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So, yeah, just, just give me a better car now? No. No, give me this. Give me this. This is the hope he stored up for you, Christian. This is his goal for you and his promise to you. And this is, this is just ahead of us. And if it's just ahead of us, then what isn't bearable now? If I know that's right there, then what can't I get through right now? No wonder David could comfort his own heart by praying in Psalm 17. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. <laughs> Full satisfaction. And the amazing thing is that the more the heart is filled with this anticipation, the more your assurance of your position in Christ gets buttressed. It's just an amazing connection between the two. So, refusing to stand anywhere but on the finished work of Christ on our behalf alone makes us anticipate the resurrection with joy. But then exploring the wonders of the resurrection makes us long for the resurrection. I want that. And then thirdly, in verse 3, And so everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And the principle again here is a very simple one. As, as one walks more and more in harmony with God's word, in purity, the more confidence they gain in their relationship to God since they're not offending him. Uh, we've discussed before, uh, a child's disobedience can't alter their status as a true child of their parent. The, the connection is, is different than that. But it can greatly inhibit the intimacy of the relationship. And it can weaken their confidence in where they stand. Obedience does not and cannot save us. But obedience is a marker of whether or not we're really his. It's a marker. It's not everything, but it is something. Don Carson puts it this way. Biblical Christianity never, ever suggests that we attract God's mercy by being good. It never suggests somehow we win brownie points with heaven and secure an abundant entrance by trying hard. Biblical Christianity nevertheless does insist on obedience. That is, we're so changed, so transformed, that the effect in our lives is to orient us toward following Jesus. That's the phrase. I love that. We're changed so that the the fundamental direction of our lives is to orient us toward following Jesus. Do we do that perfectly? Of course not. But that's the the fundamental direction. Otherwise, the confession, Jesus is Lord, is meaningless. It doesn't mean a thing. John puts it in the baldest terms, not feeling, not sensation, not happy worship, not sensing one is particularly spiritual. But obedience, John says, is a fundamental test. Now let me go back. Again, obedience isn't everything, uh, for sure. But it is something. (laughs) It does factor in. And it's not to say that we can set levels of performance. That's not his point. But it is to say that we must have a right relationship to him in that our desire is to serve him, however imperfectly that plays out. And when that desire is not present, there can be no reasonable assurance of salvation. It won't be there. But when that motivation is there, even when it's faint, when we have really believed the gospel and then factor into our living today that one day we'll be resurrected to stand before him, that his goal for us in the resurrection is to be holy even as he is holy, that our relationship to the resurrection informs our behavior and reinforces our assurance of salvation. It's wonderful. Again, they're just tied together. This is why Jesus will say in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? How can that be? And so Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians, so we are always of good courage. 
We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We're trusting in his promise. Yes, we are of good courage, and and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, whether, whether we're already in heaven or we're here now, we make it our aim to please him. A wonderful way to express that. Refusing to stand anywhere but on the finished work of Christ makes us anticipate the resurrection with joy. Exploring the wonder of the resurrection makes us long for it. And anticipating the resurrection makes us live life today in light of it. It says, hey, I want to line up with that. As, As we grew closer and closer to our wedding, we did the things that connected up with that day. So we got the marriage license and rented the tux and ordered the flowers and secured the place where we were going to have the ceremony. You, you do the things that go in that, in that track. And if, and if we really believe that we're coming to that consummation day when we'll be wedded to him, what are, we, are we putting into, into place those things that, that anticipate that great day on the resurrection day? And so you take all of that together and we get precisely what we had read for us out of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter summarizes, if you will, Paul or John in in an amazing way. So therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's that forward look. It's not about today, it's about what's coming. And as you are aiming at that, today will begin to take care of itself. If we're to live soberly and soundly and face all the trials and pains of this present life and even gain from them, we must set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the resurrection. And when this becomes the habit of thought, man, your assurance of salvation grows. It's just, it's automatic. You can't help it. Unless this is the case, then for many of us, and this is what happened, today eclipses everything else. The immediate defines everything. But when this is the case, when this is the mindset, it produces an ever-increasing confidence, assurance, and joyful anticipation. One that will buoy you through the darkest and hardest of times. Uh, The great Puritan, I'll close here, the great Puritan Richard Baxter, uh, one of my favorites, uh, when he was 35, got gravely ill. And he was pretty certain he was going to die. And so wanting to prepare himself for heaven, he said, you know what I'm going to do now that I know I'm going to die? I'm going to start meditating on heaven in a very focused way. And the joys that will be brought to me at the resurrection. I'm going to start thinking about that ahead of time. Uh, The thing was, he eventually did recover. Uh, but, but he had written so much on his meditations during that time that he eventually turned it into a book, a rather massive volume, one which I just love, I dip from on a regular basis. It's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. Uh, and in that book, he suggests that believers ought to meditate on heaven for at least a half hour every day. You want to transform your life, meditate on heaven for a half hour every day. He said, quote, for want of this recourse to heaven, thy soul is a lamp not lighted. If you're not running back to your, your anticipation of heaven, then your light kind of goes out in your soul. You just don't have that, that flickering flame for the future. Uh, let, me, let me give you a quote from it here at the end. It has pleased the Father to open his counsel and to let us know the very intent of his heart, and to acquaint us with the eternal extent of his love. And all this, that our joy may be full, and that we might live as the heirs of such a kingdom. And shall we now overlook all as if he had revealed no such matter? Shall we live in earthly cares and sorrows as if we knew no such thing? And rejoice no more in these discoveries than if the Lord had never written it. Oh, that our hearts were as high as our hopes and our hopes as high as these infallible promises. Yeah. 
Let's pray. Father, when we stop and consider this this morning, what you have prepared for us to remind us of the joy and the wonder and the, the, the concrete promise of the resurrection that is just before us. Oh, how we thank you for it. And how we ask for each one here, if they don't know Christ now, that they would consider it in this moment because now they need to consider that they will stand before you someday. And if they aren't clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone, if they think they can stand in any way in their own righteousness, they will face only judgment and destruction. But you hold the gospel out to them today to believe and trust Christ the sacrifice for our sins, and the imputation of his righteousness by believing. And Father, for my brothers and sisters here today, might we gain a new fervor, a new joy and anticipation and looking forward to that resurrection day. May it begin to inform us in how we live today so that the cares and the concerns of this life don't eclipse us, and so that our own weakness doesn't somehow ruin our assurance that Christ has promised, and whatever Christ has promised is absolutely sure to come to pass. Let our hearts rest in him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.